Hello and welcome to Stoicism, Philosophy as a Way of Life. My name is Donald Robertson and today's guest is Josh Bertolotti, host of In Search of Wisdom podcast and founder of the Perennial Leader Project. Josh was one of the speakers at our Stoicon ex-military event a few years ago. We're both very active on Substack now, so I thought it would be a great opportunity to reconnect and chat about philosophy as a guide to life. So hello and welcome, Josh. I'm in Montreal today, as I was saying. Uh, what's it like where you are? It is a beautiful day in South Georgia. So yeah, doing well. And thanks for having me on, Donald. Well, it's a pleasure. I'm looking forward to it. So let's start with a little bit of background. How, the mandatory question is, like, how did you get into philosophy in the first place and why? I'd say mostly dumb luck, if you will. Uh, I didn't grow up a big reader. Uh, there weren't really a lot of books laying, laying around the house, if you will. But I remember when Kindle first came out, I think it was like 07, 08 or something like that. I, I picked up one of those Kindles and didn't have a ton of money to buy all sorts of books. But by, uh, by luck, I found all these free public domain books that I could download and awesome. downloaded a bunch of them, like people that I knew, like Aristotle and Plato. But for some reason, I also downloaded the Enchiridion, and it was titled The Thoughts of Marcus Aurelius mm-hmm. by literally just sheer dumb luck and probably the the Kindle Kindle Amazon folks helping me out with recommendations and stuff. But uh, Wow, but, so it's, oh, you owe it to the algorithm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, thank you, thank you. Um, but as it turns out, the Enchiridion was – really one of the only ones that to me was was readable. I was very new to philosophy and and some of those public domain versions of of other figures were were pretty difficult to get through especially at, at that point. Well, here's a tip actually for listeners and stuff like some of the public domain translations tend to be the older translations and so sometimes I find people go I got this public domain version of Seneca or Marcus Aurelius and it, geez it's like reading the King James Bible or something like that and I'm like well that's because it was written 150 years ago right but they so un, we usually have to pay to get the more recent translations but they you know people those are the more popular ones I find but I'm completely with you when I was a kid which was you know a really long time ago. Do you remember when everything was made of wood and cost two pence? That was when I was a kid, <laughs> like back in the days when everything was made of wood. There was but there wasn't any internet, and uh, I used to go to secondhand shops and look through all the books that they had, just in the off chance that I could find a book vaguely related to philosophy, and it was kind of fun in a way. But I acquired this really kind of hit and miss library of books when I was a teenager. I didn't know what books and philosophy even existed, you know, Mm. to be able to kind of order them from the bookshop or whatever. And I couldn't really afford to buy many new books. So I had a a kind of strange education. Classics were some of the ones I found some uh, Plato's dialogues and things like that. They were easy to get a hold of. So those were the days. And you got into kind of philosophy, you know, you picked up your Kindle, you never looked back, you know, the algorithm... Like, I guess maybe you're a child of artificial intelligence. Like, AI was kind of like, we need to get this guy into Marcus Aurelius and Epictetus and stuff like that. Um, and then, how did you end up starting your multiple? You, I think you've got multiple podcasts, don't you, and newsletters and stuff. Like, what, how did you, how did you get into doing that stuff? Yeah, I, um, I, I spent my adult life in the, in the military and 
retired from the military a few years back. And after I retired, I was in the DC area and I was worked some of that consulting type of stuff for a couple of years and found myself making more money than I knew what to do with, but not very happy. I, I really wanted to just spend my time searching for wisdom, really. Um, I'd become a really avid reader and podcast fan and stuff like that. So um, yeah, one day I, I reached out to a handful of authors that I, I really liked, you being one of them, actually. And, you know, just asked if, if I could connect and, you know, for this podcast and, and thankfully, you know, a few of you replied back and were gracious enough to share your time and wisdom and the rest is history, as they say. I've got a lot of time on my hands. Like, I, don't, I, don't, I, don't, I, don't, I don't have a busy social life. Like, I remember the days when I had uh, more money than I knew what to spend on. Like, those were the days. <laughs> I kind of enjoyed that. But um, yeah, so you got into doing the podcast and the newsletter and stuff. It reminds me of, I always remember this quote from Benjamin Disraeli, the British Prime Minister, always oh, stuck in my mind because he said the best way to learn about a subject is to write a book about it. And it's a deeply paradoxical thing to say because most people assume the best way to learn about a subject is to read a book about it. But when you start writing, it forces you to be more active in the process and to think about things from a different perspective. Reading can be a bit you know, passive compared to actually. And I think doing podcasts and newsletters and stuff is kind of somewhere in between or it's on the road to be more actively involved with the material. So you... I assume you you know you learn different things like and you learn things in a different way when you're interviewing people and talking to them and writing about it. I wonder you know if you shared that experience like, is that how you you've found it to be absolutely and um and I think I was getting to that point even before starting the podcast. I remember reading a few books and having a strong desire to want to ask some clarifying questions to a few few of these authors there might be a particular idea that would grab a hold of me. And I was thinking to myself, man, I would probably spend $500 to get an hour of this person's time to learn, you know, a little bit of, of what they, you know, learned through that process of writing the book and coming up with this particular idea. And now we have podcasts. It's much easier. We've got, but authors are way more accessible than they ever were before. Like back in the day, like authors used to kind of be kind of miserable antisocial hermits, I think, that, you know, lived in, in little cottages in the countryside and never spoke to anybody. They just had a typewriter. And now it's like, couldn't be more different. They're all over the internet. They're constantly talking to people about the books and things like that. So it's really, it's really transformed the experience. Well, I mean, I hope you don't mind me asking then, just because I think it'd be interesting for listeners. Who um, who are the kind of authors that you remember having on your show, the ones that kind of stand out or the ones that you found most interesting? I, I definitely cover a lot of different, you know, wisdom traditions and topics, but some definitely familiar names for your listeners, people like Massimo Pigliucci, William B. Irvine, um, also a lot of modern philosophy Professors, a couple that come to mind are Kieran Setia, Sky Cleary, but I, I've really explored Buddhism, Confucianism, Epicureanism, Christianity, I mean, many different uh, wisdom traditions. I think uh, around a around 120 episodes or so in. So, 
it's good. I think it's healthy to do that. When I was a kid, I read lots of world religions and philosophies and things, and I'm glad I did it really early when I was in my teens, when I was bunking off school. Actually, that was kind of what I was busy doing when I wasn't in school. Um, but uh, I'm a terrible advert for you know my other people's kids and stuff like that because I I you know I didn't go to school much, but I spent most of my time reading books, and I got probably got a better education that way. But they, I was an autodidact, self-taught in that sense. So the you studied all, you've learned about all these different things, and I think one of the advantages of that is my belief is that it helps to inoculate you against being dogmatic, you know, because you think, oh, there's some cool ideas in Taoism. Oh, there's like a couple of cool ideas in the Bhagavad Gita. Oh, there's, there's interesting aspects to Islam and stuff and, and Aristotle and things like that. And I think people who are able to read things widely have the massive advantage in life that it prevents them from developing tunnel vision and, you know, overly identifying dogmatically with a particular ideology or way of looking at things. It broadens the mind. Yeah, that's been my experience. Sometimes I think of, you know, what might be a takeaway from, you know, this little project over the last few years. And it, it might connect to that in the way of just, you know, wisdom and, and other things in a way is is many things. You know, I've asked uh, over 100 people this question, what is wisdom? And I don't think I've ever heard a response and thought that, you know, it was completely out of out in left field and, you know, the opposite of wisdom. I've heard a lot of, you know, thoughtful, wise responses, but diverse responses. You know, wisdom is is many things. And I I think um in the way of my perspective today, you know, it's probably much more nuanced than it was uh, a few years ago. It's one of my favorite questions. Sometimes people say to me, How should we teach philosophy to kids? And I think well, there's lots of different answers we could give to that. But I, I think one of them is, I usually say something a little bit oblique, like I think we should lead by example, like rather than lecturing them and stuff. But and there are ways that we can do that. But if we're going to ask children, young children, questions about philosophy, it strikes me that one of the best ones to ask is, what is wisdom? Like I ask my little girl that, you know, and they don't always have an answer. But, you know, they get just the very fact, I think Socrates would say, if Socrates worked with kindergarten children, which he didn't, but if he did, like, I think he would just say to them, you know, what do you think wisdom is? Could you give me an example? Like, because yeah. the very act of thinking about it, you, people don't talk about it. The, the internet's awash with people claiming to do self-improvement stuff. Like, and I find it fascinating because to me, it seems like often they're doing the opposite. Or there's huge gaps in what they're doing. They're massively neglecting areas of, of self-improvement. So, you know, people read self-help books for years, do lots of courses and stuff. And then if you ask them the kind of question that Socrates would is, how would you define wisdom? Often they're kind of, they just look at you blankly. And he would say, that's the most important thing though, right? You know, we kind of need to answer that question in order to understand what we're doing when we're doing self-improvement, what it is that we're looking for. I I think, um, like I say, it's a big advantage. I think this kind of eclecticism, even I'm particularly interested in stoicism, as you know, but the Stoics, in a sense, were eclectic. The founders of Stoicism studied cynicism. They studied uh, academic philosophy in the school of Plato. Um, they studied Xenophon's dialogues. They studied the Megarian school of philosophy, which has kind of disappeared from history. 
Um, and so they drew on all of those things. And I think you can see, for example, in Seneca, him saying, look, if there's any truth in Stoicism, we'd expect other people to arrive at similar conclusions. So voila, like in the Greek tragedies, they have similar ideas. Like you can find similar ideas in Epicurean philosophy, even though we disagree with stuff that they say, like there's still bits where they've arrived at similar conclusions. Like in the Stoics think common sense should tell us if, if we're on the right track, we should find other people have arrived at similar conclusions. Yeah. It's so fascinating. Um, just to touch on what you said initially about wisdom not necessarily being a a word that is you know in use as much as as it should be you know yeah. wisdom and love it it seems that they're almost so big that it's it can be an intimidating maybe question to ask i i remember back in the day you used to read a lot of leadership books. I mean, just stacks of leadership books was really interested in it. But so many of them, it, it seemed to be missing like the wisdom piece of, you know, you could yeah. say, read many of these books, but I wouldn't necessarily be able to put it into practice in, in that type of stuff of how do you actually a- apply this in, in the day to day. So it's an, it's a really interesting thing. I think leadership's a really interesting example of, of how wisdom has disappeared. You know, what is the point of self-improvement? If it's, you know, if you ask people that, they're, they're doing self-improvement, they're reading about it. But if you ask them what the purpose of it is, they often just kind of look confused. And yeah. they'll say, oh, maybe it's like to influence other people or it's to succeed in business or something like that. And Socrates, like his main point would be, well, none of those things really matter. Like, unless, you know, you have wisdom, right? And leadership's a great example. So there's lots of books about how to be a great leader and how to be able to motivate and influence other people and get them to do what you want and, um, you know, stimulate them and organize them and give them goals, just like Hitler like and Stalin and other yeah. terrible leaders in history were really good at doing those things. So yeah. like they're often a recipe for being a terrible leader. Like and what separates like a good leader from a bad leader like isn't necessarily their ability to mobilize other people, but their ability to know what it is that we should be doing. Like and that's where wisdom comes in. Socrates was aware of that. He knew, you know, leadership ability in the sense of being able to persuade and motivate other people is dangerous. If we don't also have wisdom and virtue, like, because, you know, terrible, horrible dictators throughout history have been really good at doing stuff like that. Yeah. Like, and getting people to march straight off a cliff or, like, you know, like do other horrendous things. So, wisdom, you know, I think it all comes, all roads lead to wisdom. You know, I think you're, you're spot on in that regard. Yeah. I want to ask a question related to what you were talking about stoicism being this eclectic thing you know i think of zeno and these early stoics like bringing the best of things together you know how in modern day there's the thing of mixed martial arts you know yeah. ufc came about and people were able to see that oh wait wait a minute you know there there's actually some ideas and some practices that are better than than others, and it gave birth yeah. to this mixed martial arts. How do you think it, it's not a small idea to be able to to do that, to bring in some sort of, I'm not saying it's necessarily like a mixed martial arts, but some yeah. sort of the best of thing to together. Not everybody thinks that way. 
Yeah, I, I completely agree with you. It's funny because I was just talking about that with uh, a couple of my friends. And again, this makes me sound really old. But, you know, when I was a young guy, like martial arts instructors got away with a lot of things, I think. You know, I saw karate instructors and some other martial arts instructors do demos where I felt like the students, you know, the student would throw a punch at the instructor, but he wouldn't really try and hit him. Like, you know, or the instructor would throw the student and you think it kind of looks like you're diving. Like, you know, like if you really, if you really tried to resist that, like maybe it would be quite easy. And and so you you think, are you not like learning bad habits from the sort of overly compliant? There's a lot of peer pressure not to make the, like the instructor look bad, right? And then mixed martial arts annihilated that. Like suddenly it got, you know, stuff got real, like it got serious. So you're asking, you know, in a way, when does philosophy and self-improvement get real in that way? And I actually, I, you know, I'm a huge fan of Socrates. I really think, you know, he's this iconic figure in philosophy. He's a quintessential Athenian philosopher. And Socrates sometimes does a better job of articulating things or representing things than many of the people that claim to follow him. I mean, Socrates went out into the Agora and did philosophy with everyone he met in the street. Like he would, he it's obvious what his answer to that would have been. He would have said, "The way you test philosophy out is by engaging in dialectic. Like you talk to people and you talk to them about the most important things in life. That was key as well. You know, modern academic philosophy has kind of lost that. We we have debates about how many angels can dance in the head of a pin, and you know, <laughs> all that technical stuff in philosophy that sort of yeah. loses sight of that. But Socrates wasn't interested in that. He, he was he would speak to military generals about what courage consists in like he would speak to politicians about what the nature of justice is he would talk to people about things that were fundamentally important to them like that were taken for granted in in their whole career in a sense or or, you know in life in general and so he'd uh, debate it with people he'd ask them lots of questions he'd let he'd let them ask him questions you know in order to kind of thrash it out, you know, and figure out what was a good idea. He constantly, he calls his method the Alenkis, which means testing stuff, mm. like testing it to figure out, you know, whether there are flaws in it by talking to people about it and letting them ask questions. But not just one person, everybody. Socrates was a radical figure because in ancient Athens, philosophers like the sophists, if we include them as philosophers of sorts, um, they mainly taught wealthy, young uh, Athenian males, aristocrats. Um, in the gymnasia, like the academy and the lyceum, women weren't out, even allowed in, and actually only Athenian citizens were allowed in. Um, and slaves, I don't think, would have been allowed in either. They had a separate gymnasium for foreigners and the poor, which was called the Kinosarges, which is where we believe like, cynicism has the cynic philosophy has some connection like to originating there, which kind of makes sense. But Socrates broke the mold because he went out and did philosophy with people in the marketplace, and he did philosophy with rich people, poor people, Athenians, but also many foreigners, um, with free men and slaves, uh, with prostitutes. One of his most famous students was a guy who'd been sex trafficked and was enslaved and made to work in a, a brothel in Athens. Wow. Um, and he became one of, one of Fido, became one of Socrates' most preeminent disciples. But probably most controversially of all, 
Socrates did philosophy with women. And the Pythagoreans had female students, but philosophers in general didn't do philosophy with women. Yeah. Like they were, they, they, we were told that Plato had two women that attended his lectures in the academy, but they had to disguise themselves as men in order to get in. Like we see Socrates talking to prostitutes, like you know, and talking to uh, other women in uh, Greek society. Like so, really, kind of testing his ideas by being really open-minded and cosmopolitan like about the sort of people. He says in Plato's Apology, he says something that's easy to miss, but I think it's really important. He says he immediately went, when he began his philosophical mission, to the people that had a reputation for wisdom. And one of them was probably Protagoras, who was known by his followers as the wisest man alive. He was the first person to call himself a sophist or a wise man. And according to Plato, he wrote a dialogue about it. Socrates goes to Protagoras. You're the wisest man alive. Okay, let a better speak to you about the nature of wisdom. And he came away from it disappointed. And then he asked a bunch of other people. And he says in passing in the trial that he often got more sense out of ordinary people. Like, you know, one of his friends was Simon the Shoemaker. Like, guys like that. And he, he you know, it's interesting. He became kind of disillusioned and he thought, when I interrogate famous politicians, you know, great thinkers, I don't really get that much benefit from it. I'm getting more insight into nature wisdom just by talking to slaves and craftsmen in the marketplace. Why do you think, like even specifically, like this idea of not knowing, you know, skepticism, intellectual humility, whatever you would want to call it, why is it still today, you know, more than 2,000 years later, such a difficult thing? I think actually it relates to what we were just talking about. I've often, I have wondered why did Socrates seem disappointed with Protagoras? And actually Plato kind of answers that question in the dialogue. So Protagoras is quite evasive. He really, really resists several times allowing Socrates to ask him questions. He changes the subject. And at one point, he, he even pretty much admits that he's got a reputation to maintain. Mm. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah. So the wisest man alive has to maintain his reputation. And I recognize this from modern research in, in health and psychology. There's a, pro, there's a thing called the problem of expert bias. Like There are researchers that found that if you want to know about a medical intervention, the, you know, it's not necessarily a good idea to ask someone that's an expert on it because people that base their career on something and are famous as experts are traditionally quite bad at cherry-picking data. To, so they have a kind of ideology or a position that they want to defend. Like, so the problem is if you're known for being an expert on a subject, like you'll tend to be quite selective and shore up your reputation. And I think that's why Socrates ended up doing philosophy with ordinary people and often particularly young people, adolescents, because he thought they don't have a reputation to maintain. So they're more willing to be wrong. They're more open to being refuted. And I think that's what part of the reason why skepticism and being open-minded is a, a problem today. It's kind of egotism. Like people don't want to be wrong. Like, and they kind of want to defend the position that they've come to identify with, especially in America in particular, everywhere in the world, but particularly I think in America, there seems to me to be a problem with political tribalism. 
right? And so people, the first thing they do on the internet if they disagree with someone is they accuse them of being politically biased, which is a mm. form of the ad hominem fallacy. You can't be true. You can't be right because you're a liberal. You can't yeah. be right because you're a Republican. Like, as if that's some kind of logical argument, right? Yeah. It's, it's one of the stupidest things anyone could possibly say. Yeah. But people say it every minute of every day on Twitter. And it really is one of the dumbest things, you know, they're advertising their own stupidity when they when they say that. Basically, it's like, I'm not even going to weigh up the pros and cons of what you're saying. <laughs> I'm just going to dismiss it because I don't like who you vote for or who I believe you vote for. It's crazy. But that shows that they're identifying so profoundly with some political tribe or other that it, it's completely derailed their ability to engage in critical thinking. Hmm. I don't, today, when I think of um, you know stoicism, things like that, this idea of training our desires and aversions, like I know last time we spoke, you talk about anger being the royal road to self-improvement, which I, I, I love that idea. But it, it seems like, to me, in my own experience and observation, it's like a a close cousin almost to, to anger sometimes can be these desires and aversions, whether it's like a desire to maintain your reputation as you were talking about, or a desire to know. Um, and, and these little things are tricky to even spot and become aware of. I think so. You, it reminds me of the Buddhist concept of non-attachment. Like Nietzsche, if I remember rightly, admired the Buddhists because he thought, he thought they were one of the few philosophies that made the problem of desire central to their philosophy. And, I mean, Nietzsche was a weird guy like, and said a lot of things. that He was essentially a sophist, in my view. Like, he said a lot of things that are false, are grossly misleading, although he's also kind of interesting to read, like a lot of sophists are. Yeah. But he, he could have said, actually, like most ancient philosophers in the West made the problem of desire central, like the Stoics did. Like, but he doesn't say that, like, because it's not what he's interested in saying. Um, I think you're right. You could say you could build a whole philosophy around the problem of desire. You you could give an interpretation of stoicism that makes that the central concept. It reminds me of the type of cognitive therapy that's most directly related to stoicism is the rational emotive behavior therapy or REBT of Albert Ellis, and Ellis makes the central concept of his therapy the idea of rigid and flexible demands it's a type of desire and he says his view is look basically it's a recipe for neurosis if you want to be neurotic have rigid inflexible absolutistic demands that you impose on yourself on life and on other people and you'll be you can be as neurotic as you like by doing that like, because sooner or later your demands are going to be thwarted and then you're going to be really upset about it. Whereas if you have flexible, like, um, desires or preferences that if they're thwarted, you're prepared for it, like, and it doesn't, it doesn't seem like the end of the world, then you're going to be much more adaptive as a human being. That, that reminds me a lot of the Stoic Reserve Clause. You know, I'm going to do this or that, but, you know, if it doesn't work out, then it's not the end of the world. Yeah. It seems so helpful in terms of just relationships. Full disclosure, I'm a reality relationship junkie a little bit. I find it so interesting. <laughs> it seems like these 
desires come up so often. And I, and I watch some of these where they have, you know, um, psychologists and experts that kind of do some, do some counseling and stuff And it. It does seem like some of the, uh, questions and advice, uh, are just not so helpful because they're not necessarily seeing that it's like, it's not about like fulfilling every desire that you have. Uh, yeah. that's not necessarily the, the, the mission here. Yeah. They, I mean, the Stoics would say, you know, learning to moderate our desires and manage them in, in a, a sense is, is fundamental to, to wisdom. Um, you know, I believe, let's go right, let's go further back. You're interested in the wisdom tradition. Let's go back to what I consider, in a sense, to be the very origin of the Western wisdom tradition. I Let's go back to a time before men, like to a time when philosophy came from women in Greece from and from a particular institution known as the Temple of Delphic Apollo, just outside mm. Athens, where the high priestess of Apollo was a woman called the Pythia, like the Pythoness, because Apollo slayed a dragon called the Python there. And she would make pronouncements that people would go away and interpret. Plutarch says that her sayings and pronouncements were sometimes cryptic. They were often two words. Many of them, most of them are just two words in Greek, like a Zen koan. And Plutarch says books many volumes long have been written about them. Like they become a motif of uh, Greek philosophy. And the three, there are 147 recorded maxims from Delphi that mm. survive today. But the three most famous ones, I think all of them were allegedly engraved at the entrance to the temple. And one of them was Gnothiseauton, which means know thyself. And that absolutely became a, a maxim of Socrates and Greek philosophy in general. And the other one is medanagan, which means nothing over much or nothing in excess. Now that relates to non-attachment. You could yeah. read that, like nothing too much. Well, what's too much? Rigid and flexible demands are too much. You've gone too far, buddy. That's, that's it. You're on the road to neurosis there. It's okay to have preferences. Like, but you're having you've crossed the line into rigid demands. You drive yourself crazy. That's too mm. much. Like, and you need to know yourself. These two things go together. You need self knowledge in order to know when you've crossed the line, how much is too much, or how much is not enough. That would require self knowledge. These two maxims complement one another, and they're both themes that Socrates returns to time and time again. But incidentally, the third one is far less well known. <laughs> that's engraved outside the temple. So much so that I can't remember what it is in Greek. But uh, in English, it's surety brings ruin. And Plutarch interprets it as a slogan of skepticism. So it means overconfidence or intellectual conceit leads to catastrophe in life. Like, so these three things, you have to know yourself. You have to understand your own nature. You know, I, you have to understand like when it's too, you're desiring things too much, like, and you need to be cautious about jumping to conclusions about things or rooting out intellectual conceit, which again is fundamental to the Socratic method. And in terms of the wisdom tradition, these are like seeds that are planted, like that go back before the origins of Western philosophy. 
Yeah, it's so so fascinating. I I love that. I've thought about those uh, in just recently, a couple of years ago, found out about the second two. I had always heard of the know thyself. It it does seem like that second one or this rigidity that that we can sometimes have can almost connect with that certainty. It's like we have a there's a way instead of many ways or there's like, you know, the right answer, which obviously shows up in um, you know, culture so much today. And then it's, it's like almost prevents the, the flexibility or moderation to exist. Yeah. The true believers, it's my way or the highway in a way it's easy when we look at other people, right. You know, and I think ancient philosophers were aware of that as well. They kind of talk about this, the problem of, of self-awareness that, you know, you can look at other people and think it's obvious what that guy's doing wrong. Like, but it's really hard to apply that kind of wisdom. It, therapists, my background's in cognitive therapy. Therapists are, are quite sensitive to this. They they spend all day helping other people, but people say, "Well, how come you're so neurotic yourself?" Like, and like, well, it's easy to help other people, right? It's obvious what that guy's doing wrong. Like, but when you look at society in general, you think clearly there's a problem with people being overly confident about their beliefs. And one of the things I noticed recently that I haven't really it didn't seem to be as apparent to me before and I have to say it kind of rose to the fore during the pandemic which is something I'm concerned about because to some extent I have a background in public health and health research and it seemed to me what we saw during the pandemic was a whatever way you look at it a a historic breakdown in public health communication because suddenly nobody believed medical experts anymore but more importantly Joe Rogan became a medical an expert in epidemiology like influencers and politicians started having strongly held opinions about medical research which would seem ridiculous to people that are actually trained in medical research like people that have never cracked open a book on the subject and don't understand the terminology that they're using you know started making claims um about viruses and vaccines and things like that they were just speaking gobbledygook like you know anybody with any background in in health research or medicine would spot that immediately but they had an audience like and so you get these people you one of the things you get is suddenly everyone's an expert everyone's an expert on climate change everyone's an expert on epidemiology you know um, I'm in favor, like you say, although I'm interested in stoicism, I also have some sympathy for the skeptics. I kind of miss the days when people would be a, have a little bit more humility um, about subjects that they've got zero training or education in. Like, but you, if you want, you can see every day on the internet, you know, you'll meet people that will try and school experts. Like, you know, and, and the more confident they are, usually the less they actually know about the subject. It's uh, like the Dunning-Kruger effect. Socrates calls it double ignorance. Actually, he's got really quite a good term for it. Ignorance is when you don't know something. And Socrates says there's nothing wrong with ignorance. It's just as long as you know that you're ignorant. You know, I don't know, like, you know, how to repair the engine in a car. Like, it's not a problem for me. Like, I just pay someone else to do it. Maybe, you know, it's not the end of the world. Like, but if I don't know how to repair an engine in a car and I believe that I do, and I don't know that I'm ignorant. That's going to cause some serious problems when my car breaks down like, and I start trying to interfere with it. So Socrates thinks double ignorance 
being ignorant but not knowing that you're ignorant is where the real problem lies. Like, there are several. The first Alcibiades, <coughs> if I remember rightly, talks about this. It's double ignorance. It's the, I, I think we see all over the internet now. And, and one of the kind of red flags for it is people having strong opinions about areas of science and medicine that they, they have zero education or training in. Yeah, it makes me, sometimes I think in the West, like is some of this stuff a West thing or is it a world thing? Like, for example, in the way of turning what is being seen throughout history, maybe as a vice, like take anger, for example, of where it can be spun into like some sort of virtue or same thing in the terms of like removing yeah. desires. No, it's about fulfilling everything that you want and crafting some sort of life. And I think the same thing with the knowing it, that can sometimes be rewarded as a, as a virtue, some sort of certainty when wisdom tells us that it's a vice. I'll be honest with you. I think it's got something to do with politicians. Yeah. That's my hunch. <laughs> and actually, throughout history, people have pointed the finger like, at politicians, um, Socrates. And maybe there's some reason for that. You know, mm-hmm. in order to get attention, in order to get people to back you and believe in you, you, you kind of need to act and talk as if you're an expert like, on everything. You've got opinions on everything. People are kind of reassured by certainty. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but most politicians have got absolutely no idea about climate change or epidemiology or the economy or any number of other things that they have really strong opinions uh, about and talk about all the time. But people want to be reassured by that. And I think also another thing is entertainment. Um, You know, there's a famous part in in Plato's Republic where Socrates talks about the Greek tragedies and he kind of spoils them because he's talking to Glaucon, um, Plato's brother, about Greek tragedies. And Socrates says, well, the, the heroes in Greek tragedies are are like just, you know, the cause of all their own problems. And Glaucon's like, what do you mean? You know, like the tragedies are our highest form of art. And Socrates is like, yeah, but the people in them are basically idiots, right? Like they're, you know, like if you look at it, Oedipus, you know, drives himself crazy, like because he gets so upset about stuff that you know unnecessarily. Really, it's just got all got to do with his way of thinking about things and his value judgments. They're, they're all self inflicted tragedies, and the problem with that is, you know, you know, it, it's it would be boring to watch a play about a guy who's completely objective and <laughs> rational about everything. Yeah. You know, it's more entertaining to watch people that are losing their minds and freaking out about things. Um, it's fun. It captures our attention, but it becomes problematic because monkey see, monkey do. Yeah. And if we then are immersed in that and emulate it, I, I would say at a deeper level as well, just to, to give a specific example, um, almost all the depictions of death that we see in movies um, and read about in books portray death as catastrophic and frightening. Not always, but like 99% of the time. You watch action movies and people are dodging bullets and stuff like that. You don't really see any examples, very few examples of anybody meeting their death philosophically. 
yeah. like a noble death or a good death. It's kind of fairly rare. It's not a completely unknown, but it's less common. We we are we are death is portrayed in, in a way that it's meant to seem frightening. Horror movies and stuff like that, you know. Um, Plato's Apology shows the opposite. It shows Socrates going to his death with complete equanimity, like when a, a philosophical, calm-headed, rational attitude towards his death. But mostly we watch horror movies and stuff like that and thrillers and things where we're we're constantly being trained to be scared of dying, like and to to view it in a sort of terrifying, panicky way. Um so I think in the ancient world they would say it's politicians and sophists that cause all the problems. That's what the philosophers traditionally say. <laughs> Today I would say it's politicians and entertainers, I get like, you know, I guess it's movies and things, but also social media influencers yeah. would be the modern equivalent of the ancient sophists. You know, they want they say things that are sensational and controversial because it gets more attention. And, you know, like the algorithms fuel that. It's all about selling, advertising and stuff. So in the ancient world, sophists got people's attention by evoking fear and anger. Influencers and the news media and stuff really explicitly do that today, rage farming and stuff, because they make money out of it. It's like in The Matrix where they're using Keanu Reeves as a like a battery or something. Like, <laughs> you know, that's what you and I are never like where we were when we plug into Twitter. They're using it like they're using our attention. Like because they make money out of having our eyes on their advertising. And how do they do that? is by telling us you won't believe what happened like in Arkansas today, shocking revelry, you know, like controversial, like in court today, sus. You know, Don Lemon is aghast. Like it was <laughs> it actually tells you what you're supposed to feel. Yeah. At some point, I don't know when that happened. They call it editorializing in news. When I was a kid, journalists just reported the facts. Whereas now they editorialize like crazy. Like they're telling you what you're supposed to feel about the facts. And they're expressing shock and disgust and horror and things. It even says it in the YouTube subject line, you know, Tucker Tucker Carlson is horrified to discover, like, you know, I'm supposed to be horrified at these things, shocked by them. Like, yeah. But they, they're training us to, you know, be idiots. It makes it so challenging to, I think, for the – you know, for the average person that doesn't necessarily have the time to bury themselves in philosophy books like like I do, I feel so fortunate. But the um, of like, what is the project? Like, if the project is tranquility, you know, and then it's you have all these other outside forces that are basically saying, you know, you're supposed to be horrified or you're supposed to be this, and it's basically probably makes. You're supposed to be outraged. Yeah. Josh, you're meant to be outraged. Obviously, they're constantly telling you to be outraged. Yeah. Right? And it's the opposite. Like Seneca and on anger is like, no, don't be outraged. Like, um, you know, the ancient philosophers in general were like, no, like, don't don't be outraged. You know, you need to rise above these things and think more rationally about it. The project, I would say, isn't primarily peace of mind. I feel like that's a red herring. That's yeah. the Epicurean path. And actually, I, this is where I would disagree with some, you know, I think all wisdom traditions have some value. But in the ancient, I find it quite useful that in the ancient world, for example, in Cicero's De Finibus, he compares different philosophies of life in terms of the definition of the telos or the goal of life. And uh, so in ancient Greeks and Romans, that, that was how you 
distinguish one philosophy from another. And I, get, I think people have kind of forgotten about that. So they would say, well, is it what you're trying to achieve knowledge or are you trying to achieve peace of mind or are you trying to achieve pleasure or are you trying to achieve uh, some kind of moral wisdom? Because there are different attitudes about what the goal of self-improvement is, right? It's really simple. There's not that many of them. Like the kind of perennial philosophies that keep recurring through the ages. And the Stoics would say, you know, the other ones are kind of like got it slightly wrong. And, and the real goal has to be wisdom, like arity or moral uh, wisdom. Basically, I, I particularly as a therapist, I would say, incidentally, there's a reason why Stoicism is popular and has influenced modern psychotherapy and Epicureanism has not. And that's because the Epicurean idea that the goal of life is ataraxia or hedone, like it's pleasure or peace of mind, is highly problematic from the point of view of modern psychology. That's the way people talk who have clinical depression. Like, you know, the, so being overly preoccupied with managing your subjective feelings, and particularly ataraxia, which would be avoiding discomfort or avoiding distress tends to lead to avoid avoidant behavior which is usually maladaptive in the long term so that philosophy actually is quite familiar to therapists from people who are deeply unwell like you know and really a, a, a healthier way of looking at things would be more about defining the goal of life in terms of living in accord with your core values or achieving some kind of enlightenment or insight. And the Stoics would say, sometimes wisdom, you know, wisdom often brings peace of mind. It has to, to some extent. But wisdom also means being tolerant of discomfort and enduring anxiety and exposing yourself to stress and danger like without being overwhelmed by it. Um, so I think, you know, this is... Although the internet's awash with self-improvement advice, I think the ancient Stoics would say some of the self-improvement advice is actually misguided. Mm. Like it's you know leading people. It could even be quite deeply. You th again, th I think my allies in this are cognitive therapists. Every cognitive therapist, the first session they do with a client, increasingly over time, it, it involves assessing the client's existing coping strategies, often stuff that they've read in self-help books or on the internet and getting them to stop doing it. Because many of the coping strategies that people use are, are basically just forms of avoidance and disguise, and, and often they're, they're unhelpful. How do people, I'm always curious to think about like putting that into practice in daily life. Like one thing I've um, found helpful for me and like challenging is um, like a big and in between things, like one of my favorite quotes from Marcus Aurelius is the fruit of this life is a good character and acts for the common good. But it seems like with across wisdom traditions, but definitely in stoicism, maybe there could be a greater emphasis on the and like, and it's, it's this, like, like there could be a thing that comes up that is unfortunate and it's possible for you to, you know, endure it and not be outraged. I definitely think that's central. We, that reminds me of what we call in therapy decatastrophizing, mm. like adversity. Um, I, would, I like to call it just having a philosophical attitude towards misfortune or adversity. And then the deeper question is, 
I was thinking of this earlier when we said desire is a problem, rigid demands are a problem. What's the remedy for them? And I think it has to be some kind of shift in perspective. There's another perspective, and it's interesting because, incidentally, in saying that, I'm I'm kind of unconsciously um, departing from the way that cognitive therapists traditionally look at it. In cognitive therapy, we usually get clients to weigh the evidence for and against a belief. Like So there's a process of thinking, kind of like dialectic, that they go through. And I think there's some value in that. But I actually think more fundamentally, there's just a different way of looking at things, a different perspective on them, like the view from above, like which really, you know, is the remedy to overattachment and catastrophizing to some extent. And I think really the source of our problems often is a narrowing of perspective. So I'll lose my job, right? Under stress, I'll naturally engage in what's called threat monitoring and my attention becomes very narrow and focused on possible sources of danger, the more anxious I am. Like, so it becomes a kind of confirmation bias, vicious circle. Like, the more I'm freaking out, the more I'm going to look for other signs of danger and I'll find them. Like, and I'll freak out even more. And then I'll become even more focused and possible. So, so it becomes like a kind of spiral into catastrophic worrying, I think, catastrophic thinking. And uh, so I lost my job, right? But if I broadened my perspective, I might think, but there's other things that are going on in my life that I could be really grateful for. And also, even though I've lost my job, I'll probably find another one. Or it gives me an opportunity to try and strike out a moan and start a business. So it might suck for like weeks or even months. But I guess after that, uh, things will change. This too shall pass. And actually, I might even be better off in the long run. And the the best way, people sometimes find that perspective hard, but it's actually much easier to adopt that perspective if you forget about the future and focus for a moment on the past. Because if you think about the first job that you lost or the first exam that you failed or the first relationship that you had that that broke up like you look back on it from 10 20 30 years later like it's easier to decatastrophize it and think yeah it wasn't the end of the world like you know oh the relationship ended it seemed really bad at the time but then i met someone else or oh yeah i lost that job it didn't work out for me but then i found another one that was much better like and so and look in retrospect i think it's easier to decatastrophize things but that comes from taking a longer view on events which goes against our instincts, our animal nature, when we're under stress. And so I don't think it's so much about weighing evidence like we sometimes do in cognitive therapy. I think it's more about just being able to find this alternative, bigger, more expansive perspective on things. And I think that helps to loosen rigid demands and catastrophic uh, thinking. Yeah. It seems so challenging for us to hold the two perspectives like even that a good character and acts for the common good it seems like we can latch on to the it's all about good character and or the other thing or just you know live over here I, i think sometimes the epicureans or even maybe like in in Buddhism, where I'm gonna go into a cave and meditate for ten years, or I'm gonna withdraw from the city, like the Epicurean, where it's yeah. they're seeing essentially one side of of something. It seems historically in Buddhism there was a big shift 
between what's sometimes called the Hinayana tradition and the Mahayana uh, tradition. And the, the earlier Buddhist tradition placed more emphasis, allegedly, there's some scholarly debate about this, but it's the general wisdom is that the early Buddhists were more uh, withdrawn and like yogis, they would go and sit in a cave and meditate. And they weren't as kind of pro-social or like engaged with the community. And then at some point, you know, the Buddhist tradition started to feel there's something not quite right about this. It's like there's something lacking in it. And they developed what something's called the Bodhisattva ideal, which is a, this idea that compassion like must be integral to enlightenment. You know, enlightenment on its own without any kind of pro-social behavior or, or compassion or whatever seems to be lacking. I think that's partly because, again, and if you think of the shift between um, looking at ourselves and how, remember when I said earlier, it's easier to look at other people and see, I can see what that guy's problem is. If you have a bunch of yogis or Buddhist monks that just sit in a cave and they seem super enlightened, from an outside point of view, if you ask yourself, do I really admire those guys? Some people might, but most people might think they're not really doing anything to help anyone else. Like, you know, it, it's kind of like, it feels like there's something more admirable in heroic political and military figures and social activists and stuff like that. Maybe in some cases, like, like you know, like going and living in a cave and disappearing up your own backside, as it were, is seems to be lacking something in, in terms of what we naturally admire like in other people's character. Um, so many of us would kind of want to do that. I mean, uh, this is going to seem harsh if, for people that are into Epicureanism, but uh, there aren't that many uh, heroic Epicureans in history. Like, you know, you might look back in, and people admire Epicurus, but Epicureanism wasn't known as a philosophy that generated lots of great political historical figures that people really look up to, whereas Stoicism was. Like, there are many famous military and political leaders in, in history, people that stood up to tyrants and autocrats, like people like Marcus Aurelius as well, um, that we can look back on and admire them for the way that they lived their life more readily because they did stuff to help other people more actively. So I, I think it's easy just to, through lacking perspective to follow. A good question to ask is what do we really admire in other people? In addition to asking ourselves, what is wisdom? It's like asking what is virtue? You know, it's a question that's useful to ask children. It's such a basic question. You know, what is it? What are the things that you admire in movie characters? Like, I really love watching movies about people that go and sit in a cave like and don't talk to anyone for 20 years but they become like super enlightened you know like yeah. you know we admire courageous like uh people self-disciplined determined people like if if what they're doing is in the in the service of good um well you know why shouldn't we be more like that ourselves why shouldn't we become like the sort of people that we admire so we can look in the mirror and have self-respect you know, you look in the mirror and, and think, I'm, you know, I can take pride in my own character. You know, the main thing that the Christians criticised the Stoics for was self-pride. Hmm. But I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing. I think self-pride is important to ancient Stoicism. 
but in the sense of you know living up to your own ideals and values so you you have a kind of self-respect the christians thought that was problematic because we shouldn't be entitled to take pride in ourselves like we should see ourselves as inherently because of original sin and so on as inherently inferior and flawed creatures like that can only um flourish by the grace of god like and the stoics were like no like we're responsible for our own flourishing like and then that means you know we should be able to take pride like in our progress towards virtue but this that, that's an interesting debate that's kind of died off now but in the ancient world you know part of the tension between stoicism and christianity was the extent to which like we can actually cultivate a healthy sense of pride or self-respect or whether that's just an inherently toxic idea yeah it's it's fascinating the um something i've been thinking about is you mentioned those three maxims the know thyself i swear i've asked uh i'm not sure if i asked you but i've asked a number of of guests on the show of you know can we know ourselves you know how should we think about that and you know you pair that with the the third maxim of of the certainty bringing insanity or something like that. I, I wrote an article a few months ago. It's one of those things where, you know, we can't really, I was making the case we can't really know ourselves or maybe as much as we, we think. And it, it can be a challenging one to read. You know, you get some negative comments and stuff like that from something like that, which I understand. But in a way, it doesn't mean that you're not searching to to know yourself. It's like you're, yes, you're. It's it's a difficult thing. You might not completely know yourself, um, but it doesn't mean you just abandon the the project all altogether. That seems to be another tricky type of idea. When Plutarch said these sayings gave birth to books many volumes long, know thyself. That- you know, is the most famous example, but we can actually see multiple interpretations of that in ancient literature. I think the most common one is, although it's hard, to, it's a hard thing to call, but I, I would say it seems to me the most common one is actually that know thyself as a memento mori, and that when you were going into the temple of Apollo, you were about to walk into the presence of an immortal being, Apollo himself spoke through the Pythia, he possessed her. So they talk about you're speaking to the God, you're speaking to Apollo. And to know thyself before you walk into the presence of a God is to realize that you are mortal. And Plutarch and I believe Seneca both interpret it that way, that knowing thyself means, you know, realizing um, that you're going to die one day and processing that and coming to terms with the implications of it. Um, Epictetus, surprise, surprise, seems to imply that know thyself is about knowing what's under your control and what isn't. Um, so no, the, the core of your being for Epictetus is proharesis, like your faculty of free will and moral choice. Like and realizing that, like in perceiving it in action, he seems to think is is what it means to know thyself. And I think for Socrates, in a sense, know thyself has to do with overcoming double ignorance and being able to really perceive 
what your assumptions are and noticing the contradictions in your thinking. Because um, when people say contradictory things and don't realize, then Socrates would say, well, obviously, again, if you imagine someone else doing that, like, so somebody that's holding contradictory beliefs and they don't really realize that they are, you look at that guy, you go, that guy is lacking in self-knowledge. Like, he doesn't understand that what he's just said contradicts what he said a minute ago, and he's tying himself in this. He doesn't see that, so he's lacking some sort of self-knowledge. So therefore, Socrates believes that when we point that out to people, which is all he did all day long, like, you spot their con- point out their contradictions, then you're enhancing their self-knowledge in some way. Um, but these are slightly different, although maybe complementary ideas about what that maxim means. Yeah. How do you make sense as a psychotherapist, the, you know, all of these sort of personality tests and models and, you know, books on self-awareness that seem to run maybe counter to, to that? In what sense do you mean that they run counter to it? Well, in the way that it, that it's a must, much more possible project to know that. So I remember reading something, um, some sort of quote, I can't remember who said it, but only the shallow know themselves where it's a, you know, it's, you know, you, you spot some of these surface level things and you come to some sort of certainty about, you know, yourself when, you know, in, in reality, we, we, we don't necessarily. Personality test. Uh, what I can say about personality tests, and this, this is going to annoy people and be controversial is that they've they've got notoriously poor statistical validity, apart from like um, the big five personality traits. And of those, if I remember rightly, the one that's most statistically robust is extroversion, or the mm-hmm. extroversion versus introversion axis. But many there are many other personality tests out there that have no statistical validity at all. You might as well be looking at your horoscope and figure <laughs> out if you're a Sagittarius or, or whatever. Yeah. Um, so the there are so on the one hand, I would say there there are there are quite there are some robust measures of personality, um, but they're kind of limited, and we don't know as much as as people are sometimes led to believe. And in psychotherapy, we don't actually in cognitive therapy, at least in cognitive therapy, we don't really make that much use of those type of personality tests. We do use some tests like schema um, questionnaires that are a bit like that, um, but because they have clinical utility, they're not necessarily that reliable as a form of classification. So I well, I guess the thing I'd say about personality tests is that they're not quite as reliable as as sometimes people might be led to assume and in clinical practice we to a large extent ignore them um that doesn't mean to say that you know like they don't have some validity and that maybe one day there'll be other ones that emerge that are far more robust so you're right you know that then that could potentially give us but it's not going to answer like for instance if the most robust thing we have at the moment is knowing whether you're an introvert or an extrovert that's not Gonna that might give you some help, and but it, it's not going to define your philosophy of. It's not enough information to define your whole philosophy of life. 
Yeah, I wouldn't think so. It's, it's almost to me uh, knowing your favorite color or something like that. It's uh, it's yeah. information, but it's not necessarily. Uh, There's other big pieces of information that we know, like you know, you know, you know, like what color your skin is and how much you weigh and how tall you are, whether you're uh, male or female, how old you are. So we know a lot of uh, information that is physical, but has behavioral, psychological implications with like a fair amount of certainty but again that doesn't that's not enough information it's to determine our, our philosophy of life i think the main the stoics anyway and socrates um and many other ancient philosophers would say really the main insight in terms of our philosophy of life needs to be this change in our values um whereby we realize that most people instinctively value or desire health, wealth, and reputation and other external goods, but that ultimately that's not really what flourishing consists in and that what matters, the best articulation of this is in Plato's Euthydemus, where Socrates says, and I think Stoicism is really based on this argument, like Socrates engages in this dialogue where he basically says, but if you take like wealth, for example, it seems like a good thing. And true, if you had a big pile of money and you give it to somebody who's wise and virtuous, it would allow them to do more wise and virtuous stuff because they'd have a bunch of money. But what would happen if you take that same bunch of money and you give it to somebody who's foolish and vicious? Wouldn't it just allow them to do more foolish and vicious stuff? Like And the same is true of reputation and friends and status. And he says all of the external goods really give you more control over your environment or they give you practical advantages or opportunities. But what really matters is whether you use them well or foolishly. And so, you know, with a flourish, he kind of concludes, you know, therefore the only truly good thing is a type of moral wisdom that would consist in knowing how to use these other things well. And so that's our fundamental transformation in our values, though, because we instinctively grow up valuing health, wealth, and reputation and other external goods. The Stoics, Hierocles uses a Greek word. He uses the Greek word for conversion, epistrophe, which I would roughly translate as almost meaning doing a U-turn, like... So completely doing an about face in terms of our fundamental values and like realizing, oh, like everyone else is running around trying to get health, wealth and reputation. And that's kind of what I spent my life assuming was really important. It's it's a wrench to suddenly realize maybe all those things are neither good nor bad in themselves. And there's something else that everyone is ignoring, except you, because you dedicated your life to studying wisdom. Like, you know, maybe that's far more important than any, and all these other things are pointless without it. Like, but that's turning everything on its head for most people. Mm. Um, it's a major upheaval. It's a, almost like a religious conversion, an epistrophe that would be required to adopt that perspective. It seems like we can practice that, though, this 180 degree, you know, perspective shift. I, I've, um, been a fan of the little bit of writing from Heraclitus, you know, obviously somebody who shows up throughout meditations, yeah. but there's some parts in there of where, you know, even with simple things, he's like, uh, we value gold 
like the donkey prefers trash. <laughs> you know, the, the, the ocean is polluted, but it's purified for the fish, you know, mm-hmm. and all oh, the way up is the way down. And so many of these different things where sometimes you can have some fun doing that. And I, I do that in daily life. It doesn't have to be some major thing where you can look at it from a totally different perspective. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. He loves these paradoxes. Yeah. Like he, he's Marcus Aurelius' second favorite philosopher, like next to Epictetus. Um, I am going to wildly speculate about something that I've got no real justification for claiming whatsoever. <laughs> it's a caveat. But there were, at least according to one source, um, I think there are two sources that tell us there were originally more volumes of the discourses of Epictetus. One of them claims, I think, if I remember rightly, one claims there were six and another claims there were eight. We only have four. And um, so Marcus Aurelius mainly quotes Epictetus, and then second to that, he quotes Heraclitus. Uh, Epictetus doesn't say very much about Heraclitus, except in one place where he says that he was one of the greatest philosophers that ever lived and a, a huge role model alongside the likes of Socrates and Diogenes. So it's really weird that Epictetus says, this guy's a hero, like he's yeah. one of the greatest philosophers, and then doesn't say anything else about him. And I wonder whether the missing volumes of the discourses contain Epictetus talking a lot more about Heraclitus and whether Marcus Aurelius is really into Heraclitus in part. Like, and also when someone like if one philosopher quotes another, like Marcus is quoting these guys, um, it may be that he hasn't actually read Heraclitus's On Nature, but perhaps has read other texts that quote from it just in the same sort of way that we would. We don't have that text, but we've got like fragments of it. It may be that when Marcus is quoting Heraclitus, he's quoting it via Epictetus or another Stoic. You know, what would be his the most likely place that he would find quotes from Heraclitus? He'd probably find it in the writings of other Stoics because from Cleanthes onwards, they were known for being really into Heraclitus. Cleanthes wrote, I think, four volumes about Heraclitus, the second head of the Stoa. Um, so of course Marcus would have come across this stuff in Stoic writings. Maybe that's where he's quoting it from. And I, I'd like, I'm curious to kind of, I wish one day we would, maybe, I guess we'll never know, but you know, I, I'm kind of suspicious that he might be quoting it from Epictetus. Yeah, it's fascinating. Yeah, it really is. So I'm conscious that we're probably reaching the end of our time and it might be a good point to, to wrap up with that with on a point of wild speculation <laughs> by, about history and i wonder did you have anything else that you wanted to mention uh, or share with our listeners before we conclude our episode today well i just wanted to say thanks so much for not only having me on today but you know, a few years back coming on the show, always being so, so gracious with your time and, and all of the content that you put out. It, it really means more than you, than you know. Um, I'd say if any listeners are interested in, in what I'm up to, probably the best spot is perennial meditations on Substack. It's a daily email newsletter. We try to put out free courses for, for members. We do a, a reading in the good life, which is like a weekly book club. So, 
try to provide opportunities to connect and uh, and hopefully search for wisdom. Well, this is going to be a good test of Substack because I'm going to we'll put the podcast out on Substack and then link to your Substack account. So we'll see how kind of like seamlessly that works. Actually, I, that would be a good way for people to get in touch with you. Nice. So, so with that, uh, I'll conclude and I'll, I'd like to thank you, our guest, Josh Bertolotti, and thank the listeners for tuning in to this episode. And uh, please, you know, post your comments and questions underneath this episode. So goodbye from me and goodbye from Josh. Bye, everyone. Thanks so much. <laughs>